This episode was recorded at the Power Licklick NGO Forum held in Sydney on Tuesday, the 22nd of October. The forum aims to strengthen the role and resilience of small and medium Australian NGOs working in international aid and development. The forum was hosted by the Kokoda Track Foundation, an organisation changing lives in remote and rural communities in PNG by providing access to education, healthcare and livelihoods and equipping the next generation of young leaders in PNG. Learn more at ktf.ngo. You're listening to episode 61 of Goodwill Hunters, recorded at the Power Lick Lick NGO Forum in October 2019. You'll hear three speakers in this episode. The first is Matt Tinkler, Director of Policy and International Programs at Save the Children. The second is Sophie Jenkins, Partnerships and Performance Group Leader at Mary McKillop Today. And the third is Braden Howie, the CEO of Action on Poverty. The discussion focuses on the challenges and opportunities organisations face with partnering, consolidating and merging. I've always loved the example of Save the Children. They've made some high-profile acquisitions in recent years, as well as launched a couple of social enterprises to diversify their revenue. We've had the CEO, Paul Ronalds, on the show, so if you'd like to hear more about consolidation, you'll find Paul's episode on our website and all of our podcast platforms. Mary McKillop and Action on Poverty have also had interesting experiences with mergers and partnerships, and I trust that you'll find the commentary of Matt, Sophie and Brayden very insightful. Enjoy the episode. So what an incredible morning. Thanks to everyone so far. I mean, really, I could leave now and have learned so much and be very grateful for today. So uh, thank you. And I know that there's a lot more to, to come. So let me um, introduce our next panel to you. So the topic now is, is something that you know, we've already touched on today, partnering, consolidating and merging. And to talk to us about that, we've got Matt Tinkler, who's the Director of Policy and International Programs from Save the Children, Braden Howie, who's the CEO of Action on Poverty, and Sophie Jenkins, Partnerships and Performance Group Leader for Mary McKillop today. So... I will let them take over and speak, and then we're going to have some questions um, again afterwards. Thanks for having us here today. I did have some slides that we can maybe flip through, and I'll, I'm going to skip through these really quickly, just as a bit of a background, and hopefully to get the conversation started. So, Save the Children's been around for 100 years. Um, most of you probably know who we are. Um, we're opened... So, we were founded by a woman called Eglantine Jeb. She famously campaigned to feed starving children in allied uh, blockaded Eastern Europe at the end of World War One. Um, so, in the last six months, I've found myself advocating to repatriate uh, the enemy's children from Syria in a very um, eerily familiar scenario for Save the Children. Um, we were founded in Melbourne the same, very same year, so 100 years old in Australia as well. Um, we're in a lot of places, so we're a big organisation. We're in about 117 countries uh, presently. Um, our own portfolio in Australia, we're probably in about a dozen countries from the Middle East through South Asia and the Asia-Pacific um, is our kind of portfolio. The Technicolor Dreamcoat is just different sort of operating models through Save the Children in those different countries. But talking about partnering, consolidating, merging, um, so why would we be doing this as a, as a big NGO like Save the Children? You know, we've got 26,000 staff around the world. I think our revenue is about $2 billion. Well, there's a few good reasons in our view. So number one, ODA is basically flatlining globally. So this, this chart is represents external... Uh, financial flows into developing countries and aid is down the bottom ODA that sort of dark green colour. Um, my view this notion of 0.7 GNI is, is, is gone, it's not going to happen, there's a few wealthy countries in Europe who've signed up to it, Australia is going the complete opposite direction as you would all well know, so 11 billion dollars cut from the Australian aid program 
in the last five or six years. Save the Children was, at that time, when the Conservative government came to power, and I think we probably are at the moment, the largest government-funded NGO partner. So in a sense, when the aid budget's being slashed, we, as in Save the Children, had the most to lose. Um, but it's not just that the, the uh, pie is shrinking, it's that there is huge pressure on us as NGOs from public giving as well. So this is a, a chart on the return on investment on public fundraising. Um, the, the dark blue line is the average return on investment of a dollar invested in the public fundraising market over the last uh, 13 years. So it is basically costing way more to raise a dollar because the market is highly competitive, it's saturated, people are giving to different causes than they used to. So the pie is shrinking, it's harder to raise a buck from the public, but not only is the pie shrinking, but the share of the pie that NGOs uh, like, say, the children, many of you here benefit from is also shrinking as well from an institutional donor perspective. These pie charts show um, modalities of funding and thematic distribution. So on the left is the, is the investment priority. So you can see that health and education, which is the main part of the, the portfolio that we would operate in, is, is about 29% on those figures in 27 and 18. That's shrunk over the years from a much, a much larger figure. And on the right is modality. So NGO share is down at 10%. We've seen things like commercial suppliers, uh, direct funding to multi-lats increase dramatically under this government as they tend to outsource development funding after they um, rolled AusAid into DFAT and lost the capacity to implement themselves, I would argue. So the pie is shrinking. Our slice of the pie is kind of shrinking and shrinking again, so it's almost death by a thousand cuts for, for NGOs at times. So what did we do to try and um, uh, address that from a Save the Children perspective? We believe that scale is important, that we, we get economies of scale and efficiency from having maintaining a significant uh, footprint. So broadly, we had three strategies around mergers, um, consortiums and partnerships, and diversifying our revenue away from institutional donors like uh, DFAT. This is a, a snapshot of some of the, the growth of our domestic programs in Australia over the last five or six years. So Save the Children's um, spend in Australia is about the same as our spend overseas uh, at the moment. So my portfolio is about uh, 55 to $60 million year on year and our domestic program's about the same. That's grown uh, dramatically in the last five or six years, um, partly through some strategic mergers. So it started with uh, a merger with an organisation called Good Beginnings uh, in 2014. It focused on uh, play to learn, early childhood education, had a very complementary mission and footprint to save the children and we merged uh, with that organisation and, and that grew our pro uh, portfolio. And then some smaller organisations, one called Hands On Learning, which is an alternative education provider. It works with kids who are dropping out of the mainstream school system in the um, uh, middle sort of high school years and we engage them with artisanal teachers, so carpenters, blacksmith, horticulture, those kind of things and, and keep them in school and then get them back into mainstream pathways. And we also merged with an organisation called Childwise in 2018 and um, that organisation is a child safeguarding and training and accreditation organisation. So we saw an opportunity after the Royal Commission into institutional sexual abuse that organisations would need to comply with the child safe standards across Australia. There was a lack of um, training organisations that were with a professional offering to service that need. So we merged with them and they are now running a, a fee-for-service um, operation for us. So it was mergers, but it wasn't just mergers. So 
probably the success from my own portfolio in international programs has come mainly from being open to formal and large-scale consortiums. So um, we won uh, a project through the Australian Humanitarian Partnership in Iraq last year. It was a $20 million project for stabilisation and recovery. It's the largest um, single grant under the Humanitarian Partnership Agreement. We didn't win it because um, we're Save the Children. We were prime, we were lead on this contract, but we won it because we put together a what I think was an irresistible consortium for DFAT that had partners who are really good at different things. So SAVE's great at child protection, education, health, care is wonderful at some of those things, but also gender specifically for this consortium, humanity and inclusion or handicap international as they were at the time, focus on disability inclusion, and the Norwegian Refugee Council have a, a methodology around, they call it um, information, counselling, legal support, ICLA, around allowing people to uh, document their citizenship and rebuild their lives when they come back into communities. The waiting on, dis on inclusion criteria in that $20 million proposal was 60%, 60% for disability and inclusion criteria. So we won it because we had humanity inclusion in the consortium and, and DFAT basically told us that. So, um, and the, the good thing from our perspective, it's hard to manage these consortiums, they're messy. Um, you have to, um, you have to really, uh, you have to invest in the consortium management unit itself and be very clear with your partners how it's gonna operate. Um, but it's led to many more opportunities. We've won a, a big project in Afghanistan through Education Cannot Wait recently. Uh, there's a Rohingya uh, um, funding through the Australian Humanitarian Partnership, again through a consortium with many of these organisations and, and SAVE has been uh, the lead contractor on that as well. So consortiums are really important to us. And the, and the last thing, and I'll, I'll stop here and hand over, is, is diversifying away from just grant-based revenue. So, I talked about Childwise on the left, so that is now running effectively as a, uh, a fully owned subsidiary of Save the Children, but a social enterprise, so doing fee-for-service work, servicing government agencies, other NGOs, church-based agencies, et cetera, around child safeguarding training. Um, the one in the middle, Centre for Evidence and Implementation, uh, we didn't merge, but we brought a group of people from the Parenting um, Research Centre over to Save the Children who specialise in implementation science, evidence-based translation, and we've started a consultancy service around that, servicing, again, other NGOs, government departments. It's got about 30 staff in that entity now and is going really well. And the last one is a bit more of an experiment and in its early days, but we're calling it Inclusive Ventures and we are essentially trying to broker private sector partnerships um, where there is a potential for development return. If I go back to that graph at the very start, um, you know, our view is that if we are only trying to leverage ODA down the bottom there to achieve development outcomes when ODA is being dwarfed by other forms of foreign investment into developing countries, we are missing a big opportunity. So Inclusive Ventures for us is trying to often leverage ODA to encourage private sector investment in those countries but generate a development return as well as a commercial return at the same time. So it's early days for that one. We've got one decent project in Papua New Guinea in the Western Province doing a an e-learning pilot with um, Digicel, the big telco provider, and a company called Age of Learning, which is a US-based um, e-learning software provider. So, um, yeah, that's my quick uh, <laughs> around the world summary on what Save the Children is doing in this space. Okay, hello, my name's Sophie and I'm from Mary McKillop today. Um, and I'm sure as, as many of the small to mid-sized NGOs represented here today, we exist as we do 
as a result of ongoing consolidation, deep and long-term partnership, and as recently as July 2018, a merger which brought together um, three existing entities, which each had, um, which were each founded by the Sisters of St Joseph. Um, and that process has led us to be the organisation that we are today, working here in Australia and overseas to enable opportunities for lifelong learning for the realisation of human rights and dignity. Um, so today's theme is, is very pertinent for us as an organisation. So I thought um, it might be a good opportunity to share some of the experiences of our recent merger, knowing that the M word can strike a little bit of discomfort and fear, um, but to share some, some of our experiences, the process we undertook and some of the key takeaways and lessons from that process of what at the end of the day was actually a really positive, um, a really positive experience for us as an organisation and has actually positioned us as a really strong um, and stable organisation for the future. Um, so just quickly to provide a bit of background to the journey to Mary McKillop today. Um, so Previously, our international work was delivered by Mary McKillop International. Um, and really, this process of consolidation started way back in 2014, which, what, which when um, MMI undertook a strategic planning process, which was a really important process for us to focus in on our program priorities, um, undertake strategic planning, develop a development effectiveness and learning framework and it saw a really strong investment in what we considered our core programming and a gradual and ethical transition out of programs that we no longer felt was our mandate as an organisation. And in the years that followed that process was when these sort of high level discussions around potential consolidation um, were starting. And as a bit of a background, the Sisters of St Joseph are a Catholic religious entity based here in Australia. And over the past 150 years have started a number of different organisations committed to furthering that legacy of education for all, both in Australia and overseas. And so what was really recognised was that to face the future challenges and external challenges facing our sector, what was really important was that we looked to bring together and consolidate those works where they complemented each other um, and from a position of joint strength and equity within that discussion. And so it was in July 2017 when the, um, the decision to merge these three entities was publicly announced. And while there are a number of driving factors behind that decision, I think key to it was firstly, as I've discussed, recognition of the shared history and also the shared objectives of each of the entities that we were looking to bring together. Um, a really important driver, as always, is to improve efficiency, to bring down um, operational and administration costs, and really importantly, to position ourselves as a strong um, organisation for the future with really clear and, um, and effective operate, operating models. Um, and I think really importantly as well was recognition that we were already competing with one another within a saturated donor marketplace. Just for your information, the names of the organisations, Mary McKillop International, the Mary McKillop Foundation and the Josephite Foundation. So you can imagine there's already a lot of donor confusion, even within organisations that were related to one another. So being able to provide a united um, organisation would really hopefully lead to greater um, donor commitment to our, our organisation and the work we're doing. Um, during this period, a transition committee was established, which I think was a really key decision that um, led to what became a really effective process. 
And the transition committee had representatives, the chairperson and the CEO of each of the three merging entities, as well as an independent chairperson. And their role was to provide overall direction for the process of un unifying these three organisations, as well as undertaking risk analysis and due diligence. And it was during this process that key decisions were made, such as the new name for the entity, um, a new vision and mission, and um, united organisational values. And importantly, the appointment of a board of directors and a new CEO for what became Mary McKillop today on the 1st of July 2018. Um, what was important then was the process of consolidating the merge. It wasn't enough just to have a new name and keep going business as usual. So we really led into a really firm strategic planning process where we looked at who we were as an organisation and further consolidating and refocusing our program priorities. Um, looking at what was important to us as an organisation. And it was from that process that we actually um, established our, our first learning for life strategy, which provides the, the basic foundation for all of our international and domestic programs um, and the values that we implement, um, we invest in those programs as well. So with that in mind, what has the impact been to date? I think a key impact for us is that this process has really led to a very strong very committed board and staff team um, who really have a sense of ownership and commitment to that uh, to the organisation's strategic plan and our future direction. Um, importantly for us, the process of the consolidation of the merge was as participatory as possible. And wherever possible, we brought in um, the knowledge and experience of our directors, our staff, our partners, primary stakeholders, donors, volunteers, anyone who has had a connection with our organisation, we sought to listen to their opinion and bring that in. And as a result, this sort of shift and, and change in our organisation has really renewed that commitment to our mission and our strategic objectives. Um, again, it's led to a strengthening of our strategic approach and a further consolidation of our program priorities. It's helped us essentially better define who we are as an organisation and what, it's, what we're here to do, um, which I think is a really important one for us. Um, equally as importantly, strengthening of our policy framework and operational approaches, bringing three entities together enabled us to cherry pick the best approaches and the best, um, the best things that each of those organisations had to offer. And as a result, we became a stronger organisation for it. Um, excitingly for us, we actually increased our income. So our, we exceeded our fundraising targets by 11% in the first year after consolidating the merge, um, which as anyone who's gone through significant organisation change can know that that donor engagement can be a huge risk. Um, so for us to see that increase in fundraising um, income in the first year really showed that the donors were on board with that decision and that the merge had actually provided more clarity and enabled us to really engage them better in our story. Um, it improved our capacity to attract and retain staff and a really committed staff as well. Um, and finally, we achieved full DFAT accreditation in 2019 as well. And while not a direct outcome of the merge, um, back in 2014, M MMI made the decision to go through that journey and the decision, it was a conscious decision and to wait until the merge had been consolidated to apply for accreditation, knowing we'd be in a much stronger position to do so once that merge had been consolidated. So what did we learn? Um, 
I've made it sound very easy from that very brief overview. It was not. <laughs> like any process of change, there, is, there were very challenging discussions, very challenging decisions. Um, and so I think, for me, one of the key learnings is the value of strategic and long-term decision-making. So these conversations started a long time ago. And importantly, it started between three entities of a similar size, um, and at a similar point of strength and growth in their organisations. So it wasn't one organisation coming to another in a time of crisis, but rather three organisations coming together on an equal footing, understanding the benefit in the long term of coming together. Seek advice early and often. And I think that's sort of been covered in the previous panel as well. I think for those of us in the small to mid-size NGO space, sometimes it's hard to be able to budget to get external advice, it's expensive. But for us undergoing this process of massive change for an organisation, having people external to the organisation to ask for advice on everything from legal matters to communications through to undertaking evaluations of some of our key programming was a really important thing for us. Um, in short, decision-making is transparent and participatory, and that links to the next one of maintaining effective, open and regular stakeholder engagement, both internal and external. We had a really strong communications policy for external stakeholders, um, but also had really um, regular and ongoing opportunity for engagement with directors, staff at each of the entities, so that there was that real sense of participation and ownership over the process. Um, respect differences and recognise the strength in differing approaches. I think at the end of the day, we're talking about people and work that they've committed themselves to for a long time. I think with a lot of small to mid-sized NGOs, there is a really strong commitment to mission, a really strong commitment to the work that you do, and at times a really strong connection to the usual ways of working, recognising that to take different approaches and to take risks can actually be really scary for small to mid-sized NGOs. So for us, it was really about looking at what was best at each of the organisations and bringing that together um, and hopefully capturing all of those really positive things from each of the entities. And that links as well to recognising the importance of people-to-people -people connections. Try and build trust early, build connections early. It is about people and if people feel informed and safe and part of the process, then they're much more likely to, to enjoy it and to have ownership over it. Um, and finally, remember your principles. We really value our principles as an organisation. That comes from everything to our fundraising, to our programs, to the way we communicate internally. Um, and so for us, it was really important that this whole process of change was managed ethically with our principles at the heart, with the deepest respect for every person that was a part of the process. Um, and just quickly before I pass on, I just wanted to share the artwork that I've used throughout this. Um, this was actually designed and done by one of our First Nations scholarship students who's in her final year of fine art at Deakin University. Um, and we just asked her, we commissioned her to do a piece for our new um, online scholarships portal. And what she came back with was m more amazing than anything we could imagine. Um, and essentially she did all this research and brought together um, typical imagery and traditional imagery from First Nations Australians as well as the peoples of Peru, Papua New Guinea, Timor-Leste and Fiji, which are the countries in which we work. Um, so for us, we'd gone through this massive process, we'd talked about it, we'd read about it, but to actually see our new organisation um, 
represented in this way, so thoughtfully and mindfully so showing the strength of that unity was a really humbling thing for us and I think really showed the value of that process and what we've achieved through it. So thank you. Thank you and thank you for the opportunity to come and um, talk to you a little bit about what we're doing as an organisation. I think like everybody else in this room, we believe that everybody has a part to play in this whole picture. Um, and for us, that's more than just giving of money. Uh, it's about giving time, it's about giving um, capabilities, intellectual property, technologies and the like, um, to each contribute in a particular way to, to the cause. There's also, I think, a value in um, small groups of people being able to come together around um, the cause of international development. Uh, there's a lot of ideas, um, there's a lot of different approaches, um, and uh, each of those bring a particular benefit or value to, to the sector. So I think there's an important part to play for the smaller organisations um, that are emerging. Um, and there's a danger, I, I believe, in the consolidation into larger organisations in that there becomes um, a coalescing of decision-making around particular approaches, particular... Um, interest groups and the like. Um, so in a way when you're thinking about merging and consolidating it's a question of how to retain the diversity, the uniqueness and the value that small groups bring yet achieve the efficiencies of scale uh, because there's no point in us uh, wasting additional resources in duplicating the things that are identical across each of the organisations. I think each of us feel that uh, to some degree. Um, so what we're doing about that is to create what we're talking about as a platform. A platform where um, partners, people, stakeholders from different, from both in Australia, internationally, can come together to build an effective development intervention uh, together. Um, which can look like a range of different things. Um, but for us it's about creating that platform that um, takes away the duplication of those things that are the same uh, and lets each of those parties retain the parts that are unique and different. Uh, so I'll explain a little bit about how that, how that works. Um, and maybe to do that, um, an overview of our history might be useful. We started about 50 years ago um, and I think like most organisations, there's a founder that sits there in the background that drove the early stages of that organisation. And for us... They were certainly there through that first 10 years and beyond. Um, so if we jump forward to 40 years ago, we were still a founder-driven organisation. Um, they were sourcing the fundraising efforts. They were identifying the programs and working with the local partners to deliver those projects. Jump forward to about 20 years ago. That's 30 years into the history of the organisation. I think most would have experienced this, that the founders have, are now off the scene. Um, handed the baton across to another set of dedicated people, many of whom are volunteers, um, and the burden on their own personal resources and their time becomes quite significant. And so for us, the approach was to branch out into new partnerships. And I would say 20 years ago, it was a classic auspicing structure. There was a minimal amount of um, oversight and support into program delivery. Uh, but it was largely bringing new partners in and helping them to engage with their partners in the field. 
jump forward 10 years ago, because of course that brings a whole bunch of compliance risk, as you can probably imagine. Um, jump forward to about 10 years ago, and that's, that's evolved more into a, a classic partnership approach. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot more emphasis on capacity building of the local partners, program delivery, uh, the compliance requirements, um, uh, but still working with a range of different partners on both sides, uh, in Australia and internationally. If we look at where, what we've come to today, we describe it more as that, as that platform. It's kind of that partnership approach 2.0 in a way, um, because we, we exist now to build that structure around those relationships um, to improve the effectiveness of those programs, the efficiency of the delivery, um, by identifying best-in-market partners in the, on the implementing side, managing the relationships end-to-end -end, um, from here across um, into, into the programs that we're seeking to deliver. So now it's, it's a platform that others can come in and build, build a, an effective and efficient and responsible development intervention on. So the benefits of working in this way as we see them, uh, first of all, uh, particularly if you, if you think from a, the perspective of a smaller organisation, um, you can leverage the scale that's available by coming together to create more effective program delivery. We have more, you have, might be able to leverage more um, professional staff on both sides that can help um, to improve the effectiveness, um, impact assessment and data reporting systems and the like. Uh, obviously, it's more efficient uh, if we cut out the duplication of the things that are the same. I think we've all been through, looked at this morning, um, the amount of work that goes into those compliance aspects around DFAT, accreditation, code of conduct and the like. And most of those systems will look largely the same um, in terms of the accountability and financial controls, um, policy requirements. A lot of these things are the same. So it's about cutting out a lot of that duplication so that we have one standardised system of all those things that are similar, yet allow the, um, the engagement with the local constituency that, you, have, that um, you, you might already have, as well as the unique approaches that you might have on the delivery side. Uh, and it's more responsible because of um, the value of those accreditation systems, whether they're ACFID or DFAT, is really about responsible development, doing it well. Uh, being responsible in the way that we invest money and in, and be involved in a in a community, um, so it provides the avenue to be able to develop a more responsible, more effective, more efficient um, delivery intervention than doing all of these things on your own. So who's it for? What we've found is that um, it suits well an emerging NGO, uh, another existing organisation that might be staring down the barrel of these accreditation requirements and the like, and thinking, well, that's a, an awful lot of work. Um, so coming in and adopting the systems that are already there that, that would otherwise be duplicated um, can be beneficial. And of course, that provides access to matching funds or um, other grants that we might have access to that go channeled back into those programs. Philanthropists, um, are sim in, in a similar way, that's kind of the origin of many um, smaller NGOs is a philanthropist um, at the beginning that had a particular vision for something that might not have been well catered for by the mainstream organisations and so have established something on their own. So it saves them having to do that, uh, gives them an avenue that they can immediately hit the ground running. Uh, universities, our largest program is actually a university program where university wants to deploy a particular 
approach, technology, something that's been developed that's going to address poverty in, in some way. But they're a university, they're not uh, an NGO. Um, so enabling them to deliver on that internationally and still meet all the compliance and, uh, requirements and do it responsibly. Again, they're not necessarily development professionals, so bringing that impact layer into the, into the picture uh, helps them to be more effective in the way they interact. And businesses likewise, uh, businesses that uh, want to take a little bit more control of their corporate social responsibility, um, have it well aligned with their mission, yet be responsible in the way that they, they uh, give and interact internationally, uh, provides them an avenue to be able to align quite closely in activity with their, with their mission uh, as an organisation and maybe the capabilities of their staff and so forth. So what we're talking about is really, in a way, an NGO 2.0. If you think about those co-workspaces, we're actually moving into one um, ourselves to help to deal with the, the scaling issues that come along with this type of model. So you can scale up and down as, as is necessary quite efficiently. But if you think about those co-work environments where you've got a range of different people coming together and, and leveraging off, a, off uh, the same set of resources at the back end, it's kind of like that. Um, it's co-development in a way that we can provide the platform that um, is built off 50 years of experience, yet bring the energy and enthusiasm of an entrepreneurial startup um, focused uh, wholly on achieving greater impact, uh, but being able to leverage off the skills and capabilities that people might be able to bring in into the picture. So we call it uh, NGO 2.0, a little bit of a focus on the future and the way things can be done more effectively, more efficiently, more responsibly. Hi, um, question for Mary McKillop, just to put in context um, your really good presentation. Um, what size were the three NGOs um, prior and then what did what you ended up with? Good question. Um, so Mary McKillop International was about 1.2 million annual turnover. Um, the Mary McKillop Foundation was probably around 800,000 um, and the Josephite Foundation sitting around six to seven hundred thousand so quite small in terms of staffing MMI we had about 12 staff but only three full-time staff um, the foundation had four staff only one full-time and the Josephite Foundation had about six offices that were full-time um, so that's sort of the size before and now um, we're currently at this year's budget is around six million staff we have mm, good question 18 staff in our Sydney office um, again, a mixture of full-time, part-time, I think around eight full-time staff now. Um, we only have six program staff, mostly part-time as well. There's, most of us are here because we love a cheap opportunity. Um, <laughs> um, and we also have remote-based staff who are doing our financial inclusion programs around um, rural New South Wales. Um, we also have a Timor Leste office with about 40 local staff. So that's by far our biggest operation and that's where a lot of our growth has happened even before the merge and since the merge. Uh, Braden, could we have an example of an emerging NGO that's working with you? The most recent would be a very small organisation, GOMO Foundation. They are um, education-focused, um, uh, looking at a particular school uh, that they want to support and then expanding their education um, interventions from there. Uh, but we've similarly had uh, ones that are um, involved with um, foot health um, for club foot in Bangladesh, for instance, the children that have uh, trouble... Uh, walking, um, and they have a really great um, intervention for being able to enable um, 
children to straighten out their legs as a particular device that they use. And um, now that's actually um, achieving a sustainable, uh, a sustainable structure uh, where they can fund the less advantaged children who may not be able to pay for the service from the revenue they receive from the um, commercial um, activities that they do uh, there as well. So they're, they're actually graduating them out of that program now um, because the institution's reaching a level of sustainability and that's one that's been funded by the ANCP program as well. Um, so that, that's part of the program is that we can bring in additional grants uh, with ANCP or, or others uh, to be able to multiply the impact, as somebody mentioned in the last panel as well. Um, sometimes there's activities, ideas that um, the existing donor base uh, are less likely to support, and the ANCP funds are, are really useful in helping to create some innovation in those programs and try different things. Um, so really great resource to be able to, to access. But like has been pointed out, huge amount of compliance that comes along with that. So we find it's been useful for those smaller organisations uh, to be able to leverage the systems that we already have to ensure that they are uh, fully compliant. We manage all of that process, um, but then they can experience the benefits of, of, those, of those funds. So. I just were wondering your thoughts on that grey area around trying to approach and sort of manage those questions of accountability and trust when you are partnering, um, particularly when you bring in sort of funds and changing compliance requirements and things like that. So your kind of experiences on navigating that space in true, in inverted commas, or meaningful partnerships. I mean, we've experienced all manner of uh, different partnerships. And um, for us, the we want everyone to comply with the standards that we ex expect across the board. Um, but we all know the reality many partners from day one are not there and it takes some time to work through that process. I'll give you one example we had in Cambodia, wasn't with our funding but another source of funding they had, there was a fraud issue, um, that funder withdrew um, but because we had this relationship with them we didn't continue with large amounts of programming funding but we gave them $50,000 a year um, focused specifically on trying to improve those systems and capabilities around the delivery of a smaller scale activity. Um, so it is challenging, it's never a simple um, relationship. Um, but I think it's a, it, it, when it comes to partnership, it's about having the, um, the spirit of the relationship and the principles in mind of how to navigate through, through that. I see already we've talked different examples of how to manage the risks around that. Um, and it's, I think, something for us that we're constantly learning and improving from. Just to admit, our experience is very similar, and I think um, it was interesting. We went through the dreaded DFAT accreditation ourselves in the last 12 months, and the area going into our org review that I was most concerned about was partner compliance on things like safeguarding, um, uh, fraud, com you know, those kind of things. But in the end, it wasn't those things that were our most problematic. It was actually some of our own practices in country offices in the Pacific that where our practice was okay, our ability to prove it wasn't as good as it should have been. Um, so it was it was interesting reflecting on that that my my focus went on to partners that pr probably should have been a little bit more internal, um, and I think the the sense we got from DFAT and other donors is they recognised that often the partners are on a journey and you are working to build their capacity and therefore there's not a um, there's not a relax relaxation of the requirements but 
it, it's a recognition that it's a bit of an evolution over time where the partners get to. Uh, it's a question for Matt from Save the Children. Um, in terms of the social enterprises that you're setting up to diversify your revenue, um, what is the resource commitment um, and potential seed capital and time um, and the, the risk appetite of the board to support such ventures? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, unfortunately, we're not. A, despite being very big, we don't have a, a big pool of capital sitting around to invest in these things. We don't have huge reserves at Save the Children. We never have. So we've had to kind of build these things and try and get them to cost neutral very quickly. So we've essentially given them a, a year's grace, maybe two at most, to be break-even on their fee-for-service model. So the sort of level of investment has varied on each, but it might be in the realm of um, 150 to 300,000 over the course of 18 months to two years that we've invested with an assumption that by yeah, year two they are breaking even and by year three they're starting to generate a return. Um, of, of those three, uh, the Centre for Evidence and Implementation is, is revenue po uh, positive. It's slightly profitable, but we've mainly been investing back into the entity. Childwise is, is, has expanded a lot very quickly because the market is there, we think, but it's, um, it's slightly worse than break even at this point, but we think it'll be break even next year. Inclusive Ventures is a bit more risky. Um, it's uh, it's not break even yet, but we'll see what happens. Thank you to everybody who has participated in this one. So thank you very much for all our speakers. Thank you to Terry, thank you to Sophie, thank you to Matt, and thank you to Brayden. That's it for episode 61. If you have any feedback on the discussion, please share it with us. And if you have ideas for future NGO forum events, please get in touch with us via our website or contact the Kokoda Track Foundation directly. Also, before we close, we're on the lookout for new sponsors. If you're a fantastic, socially conscious, for-purpose organisation and you'd like to share your great work with over 10,000 listeners across 56 countries, then please get in touch. Bye for now.